0: In this series on living by faith in a sin-cursed world, we began looking at Joseph in the book of Genesis just to learn and see how God is sovereign over all things and He providentially works out His will uh, in human history. Then we looked at Job. Remember Job 1 and 2? Job's response to difficult times in a sin-cursed world. Then we looked at, well, when Job sinned against the Lord. He had wrong understanding in Job uh, 41, how he repented of his wrong views. Last week we looked at Psalm 73 and how it's easy when you see the wicked uh, growing and expanding and, and nothing's going wrong for them. It's easy to look at circumstances and to arrive at a conclusion that, well, maybe they're right. Maybe I'm wrong. But we go to the Lord uh, the ordinances and means, the channels that he's given to learn, and we see things rightly. The psalmist, it says there, went to the temple, and he saw things from God's perspective. We're going to look here, Daniel chapter 3. This book of Daniel, it challenges Israel to godliness, and it comforts them by reminding them of God's care. That's the twofold purpose of the book of Daniel, to challenge Israel and to comfort them. To challenge them to be godly and to comfort them that God cares for them and he will care for them when he restores them under the Messiah. If you want a basic theme for the book of Daniel, it would be this that the Lord is the one true and sovereign God. The Lord is the one true and sovereign God. Daniel reminds Israel God is absolutely sovereign and, here's the 25-cent theological word for the day, He is transcendent. That means He is above everything. He cannot be compared to anything in this universe. He cannot be compared to anything in this universe. No Gentile ruler or nation, no matter how powerful, how significant, how great, none can equal or thwart the Lord. In Daniel chapter 1, we read how God shows his rule by bringing Daniel to Babylon. In chapters 2 to 7, we see God's rule over worldly empires. And then in Daniel chapter eight to chapter 12, we see God's rule over Israel's future. That's the basic threefold uh, division of the book of Daniel. Chapter one, God's rule in bringing Daniel to Babylon. Chapters two to seven, God's rule over Gentile nations. And chapters eight to 12, God's rule over Israel's future. Most of us know, I think, that the New Testament was written in the language of, well, Greek, what's called Koine Greek. So if you were to compare uh, present-day Greek language with New Testament-era Greek language, they're completely different. It's, a, it's like trying to read uh, Chaucer's Geoffrey Chaucer's Canterbury Tales, which was written in English. You're not going to understand it because language changes over time. We know the Bible was written in Greek, in the New Testament, and in Hebrew, in the Old Testament. And that's mostly true. Greek, Hebrew, and there are small sections of the Old Testament that are also written in Aramaic. It's kind of like a, a cousin somewhat to Hebrew, but it's not the same. Daniel has sections that are written in Hebrew And sections that are written in Aramaic. The same book. Why did Daniel do that? Why did the Spirit move Daniel to do that? Well, he wrote those sections in Hebrew. Specifically in those that deal with Israel and their future. So, when he's speaking about Gentile nations. Guess which language Daniel used to write it. Aramaic. To make the point. Very clear that God is sovereign over pagan Gentile rulers. So in chapter 1, we saw how God's rule in bringing Daniel and his friends to Babylon. Daniel chapter 2, if you read that this week, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream. And unlike Pharaoh, Pharaoh related his dream to his wise men and then said, what does it mean? Nebuchadnezzar said, I had a dream and this is what you need to do. You need to tell me the dream and what it meant or else you're going to die. And they said, nobody can do that. You can't tell, what the, tell us what the dream is and, and then we'll tell you the interpretation. And Nebuchadnezzar said, no, I know, I know the games that you guys play, It's not going to happen. So he set about, because no one could do it, Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar uh, started to set about to kill all the wise men, Daniel and his three friends included. But Daniel said, "Hold on, the Lord who reigns in heaven, He will give the answer." And the Lord did, and He said, "This is the vision that you saw." And Nebuchadnezzar saw this huge, this huge image in four different types of uh, construction, if you uh, construction material. The top part, the head, was gold. It was gold, and Daniel said, "This is you." King Nebuchadnezzar, the the torso, the the chest and the arms, was the kingdom that would follow Nebuchadnezzar. It was made of silver. The kingdom after that, the belly and the thighs was made of bronze, and then the fourth kingdom, was made of iron and clay. And you're there in chapter three. Go back to chapter two and verse forty-four. I'm sorry, let's, let's read both uh, the relating the dream and the interpretation. Uh, go to chapter 2, verse 35, where Daniel tells the dream. Verse 35, Then the iron, the clay, the bronze, the silver, and the gold were crushed together and became like chaff from the summer threshing floor. The wind carried them away, look at this, so that no trace of them was found. And the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the whole earth. So Daniel saying, this is the dream that you saw. All these great kingdoms, the stone came and just crushed it so that there's nothing left. And then Daniel interprets it in verse, 40, uh, verse 44. In the days of those kings, I'm sorry, verse 45. Inasmuch as you saw, the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces, the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. The great God has made it known to the king that what will, hap, what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and its interpretation is sure. Yeah, I did need to read verse 44. Verse 44. In the days of these kings, look at this. Here's the interpretation of that a great stone that would strike. The God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed. And the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It will be an eternal kingdom. Christ's kingdom. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms and it shall stand how long? Forever. All crushed by the great stone. So, put yourself in Nebuchadnezzar's shoes. He just had this dream. Daniel interpreted it to him. And Nebuchadnezzar saw... Well, he heard. Who's the head of gold? I am. And what did Daniel say is going to happen to all these kingdoms, mine included? We're all going to be ground to dust and never remembered, completely forgotten. Some years later, Nebuchadnezzar had evidently been thinking about this vision and thinking about the fact his kingdom's going to be overthrown. And true dictatorial fashion, Nebuchadnezzar decided, I'm going to do something about it. What is it about dictators? Their head is like massive, isn't it? I've got everything. I've got all the power. I'm going to keep this from happening. And we start to see in chapter 3 how he sought to do that. Number 1. If you're following along in that notes there, we see, number 1, how unbelievers... Whoops, I forgot an apostrophe there. We see unbelievers attempt to, your blank here is defraud. D-E-F-R-A-U-D. How unbeliever the unbelievers attempt to defraud God of the glory and worship that he exclusively deserves. Verses 1 to 7. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Jerusalem, and it seemed as if <coughs> Nebuchadnezzar destroyed Judah's god. The Lord God. And so he then established an image, verse 1. Image of gold whose height was 60 cubits, its width 6 cubits, and the location of it there. So it's 90 feet tall. It's not very wide. It's this tall, skinny thing, and overlaid with gold. Now, 90 feet, that doesn't sound that impressive to us, does it? My dad is a ham radio, amateur radio operator, and he has this tower next to his house. he's had as long as I can remember it's 50 feet tall Um, when my dad started getting older he got rid of the old tower and put in a new 50 foot tower but one that you can crank up and down I remember my dad going all the way up to that tower with his belt on and 50 feet up yeah that's pretty high double that that's that's pretty tall isn't it but we live in the day of skyscrapers and cell phone towers and 90 feet to us is just kind of like eh you know what's the big deal You've got to think of this in their time. This would have been an incredible thing. And brilliant. It's gold. It is something. It is a sight to behold. It's impressive. You can't miss it. The dedication of it in verses 2 to 3. I kind of felt sorry for our scripture readers today who had to read all these sheriffs and all that and all the instruments eight times, it seems. I'm not going to repeat that. Verses 2 and 3, what happened here? Well, Nebuchadnezzar called all the rulers of every nation that he ruled. Call them together for a big conference, a conclave, a meeting, a worship service of all the kingdoms that were present there. And he makes clear, he, through this, let me just stop a second, what was the image made of? Gold and what was the dream Nebuchadnezzar had several years before? That he's the head of what? Nebuchadnezzar is making very clear here. I'm the head of gold, and you, all nations under my power, you will recognize this. And so then, number three, he gives a command. He gives a command. Look at verse four. A hero cried aloud to you. It is commanded, O peoples, nations, and language. That at the time, at the time you hear the sound of the horn, flute, harp, lyre, and psaltery, in symphony with all kinds of music, you shall fall down and worship the gold image that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. And whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast immediately into the midst of a burning, fiery furnace. So let's put a couple things together here just so we can get what's going on. The first thing that we see is, in addition to this tremendous uh, image, there is this amazing state orchestra. All kinds of instruments. Wind, brass, string, all kinds of instruments. Aesthetically pleasing. Affecting the emotions, that's what music does, doesn't it? It affects the emotions. That's the first thing we see. The second thing we see here is that everyone is commanded. Everyone is commanded to fall down and worship this idol. You know what this is? This is state created religion. This is state sponsored religion. And what Nebuchadnezzar is doing here is he is trying to unify his country and religion. We're all going to worship together. This is what we're going to do. The king was the head of state, and the king was the head of the religion. So they got all this music, aesthetically pleasing, getting the emotions involved. He has everyone to command. You're all going to do this. And to make sure, he has a fiery furnace. Now... If somebody refused to do number two, so they like the music, that came for the music, I wanted to hear this great orchestra, but when it comes to falling down, nah, I don't want to do that. Nebuchadnezzar wants to make sure that you're going to do that. Remember from verse six, whoever does not fall down and worship shall be cast, how soon? Into the fire. Immediately. So, get the picture. You've got this idol, and what is right there also, that everyone sees you see this fire going up, the smoke. And Nebuchadnezzar says this, when you hear the music and the state orchestra playing, you're going to hear the command, and if you don't do that, you got that. That's your two choices. Worship, worship me, or die. Worship or die. This is not a suggestion. This is a command. So what's the response then of the people? Well, that's verse 7. When everyone heard the sound of the horn, and flute, harp, etc., all the people, nations and languages, fell down and worshipped the golden image which King Nebuchadnezzar has set up. So when the time came, everyone did this. Put yourself Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's shoes because they are there. You have... Hundreds, dozens, a bunch of dignitaries. They've all got on their, 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 their state best clothes, representing their nations. Everyone bows down. You've got all this music going on. You've got the fire going, and you got the idol there, and everyone falls down and worships except for what? Well, I'm kind of really standing out like a sore thumb now, aren't I? I'll make some points about the worship of these unbelievers uh, later on, but I just need to point out here that we need to see that unbelievers' worship, if you want to call it that, unbelievers' worship, it is driven and it is evaluated by material substance, material things. What drives unbelievers' worship? What evaluate, what, how, do we, how do unbelievers evaluate worship? What does it look like? What does it sound like? How many are going that way? You know, God created man and woman to worship Him. He created us to be worshipers, didn't He? He made us in His image. That's what separates us from salamanders and monkeys As we're made in God's image, we understand who God is and we can respond with our will and language and song. But when sin came into the world, it corrupted all that. And now everything's upside down, inverted, and completely skewed. Now, instead of worshiping God, we worship ourselves or things that we want to put up as ourselves. This is how unbelievers worship. And so it's materially oriented. This is always a danger for Christians because we still have a sin nature. And what do we still live in, Christians? We still live in the world. And the world can pressure us into its form. And the world values appearance. And the world values how things sound. And the world values numbers. Isn't it easy for us to go in that way? And we must beware. We must remember what Jesus said. Worship in spirit and truth. I'll say more about this at the end. Number two. We see here how God's people are devoted to him. God's people are devoted to Him, to the Lord, no matter what the personal cost. Verses eight through twelve, we read how these believers are betrayed. This is maybe it's hard to nail down the precise date of the events here in chapter three. It's maybe fifteen years though since chapter one, where we had three Jewish young men, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. They were brought against their wills to Babylon, and as part of their being brought into Babylonian culture, they were renamed. Now I don't know if you can really get it from their Hebrew names of Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, but there are aspects of their names that talk about the one true God. And so they are completely renamed. Daniel's name was Belteshazzar. They are completely renamed. They, They are given Babylonian names that match up well with Babylonian gods. But these three men rose to prominence. They rose to an important position. But yet, as God-fearing Jews, there were certain aspects of this pagan culture that they would not adopt. Remember chapter 1, verse 8? In fact, let's go back there. Chapter 1, verse 8. As Jews, they were told by God's law what they can and cannot eat. We don't have that right now. So if you want to eat a salamander, go for it. I can't imagine. You can't, the Jews couldn't do that. They were told what they would eat. But it says here in verse 8, chapter 1 verse 8, Daniel purposed in his heart, he would not defile himself with a portion of the king's delicacies, nor with the wine which he drank. Therefore he requested the chief of the eunuchs that he might not defile himself. So Daniel and his three friends, they said, we are not going to defile ourselves with us. We are not going to adopt this aspect of Babylonian culture. They were in the world, weren't they? But they were not of the world. They feared the Lord. They had a reverent faith. A reverent faith in the Lord that demanded exclusive love of no one but the Lord. Exclusive obedience of no one but the Lord. Exclusive worship of no one except the Lord. Even at the cost of their lives. Well, these Chaldeans, coming back to chapter 3, uh, verse 8 and following, you, you get the racial tension here, don't you? Okay. They're in Babylon. Here's these Chaldeans, these Babylonians, and they see these Jews. Did you get the how that's worded there, verse 12? There are certain Jews, kind of picking them out you kind of wonder if there were other Jews present that did bow down to the image. There are certain Jews who did not. And so they reminded the king of his decree and they accused these Jews and the point of verses 8 through 12 is they deserve to die. End of verse 12. They do not serve your gods or worship the gold image which you set up. And so then believers, verses 13 to 15, number 2, are threatened. Nebuchadnezzar, verse 13, in rage and fury, gave the command to bring Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. So they brought these men before the king. Nebuchadnezzar spoke saying, "Is it spoke to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, that you do not serve my gods or worship the gold image which I have set up? Pause. Did you catch? Nebuchadnezzar's completely blind. You don't serve my gods in the image I set up? There's a passage, I think it's Jeremiah 17. I love that passage. It shows the futility and the foolishness of idolatry. They create it, they set it up, they got to prop it up so it doesn't fall down. Isaiah does the same thing. And Isaiah, maybe 44, I can't remember where exactly, it talks about how the the foolishness of the idolater is he'll, he'll... Do all this cooking and all this stuff. And with leftover stuff, he's going to make a god out of that. It's just foolish. But here's Nebuchadnezzar saying, You will not worship the god I've created. So verse 15. If you're ready at the time, you hear the sound of all these instruments, and you shall fall down and worship the image which I made good. But if you don't worship, you shall be cast immediately into the midst of the burning fiery furnace, Oh, oh, let me add this. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? So Nebuchadnezzar doesn't depend on secondhand testimony. He wants to get it right from their mouths. But we hear his self centered idolatry at the end of verse 15. Who is the God who will deliver you out of my hands? He's basing his this hubris, this pride. This myselfness on material circumstances. His great power. His great wealth. All these things. His prestige. That is the attitude of every convinced idolater. Let me give you some examples from Scripture. This is the attitude of every convinced idolater. Remember Pharaoh? When Moses came to Pharaoh and said, let my people go. Remember what Pharaoh said? Who is the Lord that I should obey his voice? A second example, Sennacherib and 2 Kings with Hezekiah. Sennacherib said, no gods can deliver any from my power. Remember Haman, when we looked at the book of Esther a year or so ago? There are people who don't deserve to live. Now, Haman, he had a big head on his shoulders, didn't he? And what happened to Haman's head? He was hung. Or to the New Testament, when Pilate... It's hard to believe Pilate actually said this to Jesus. A Pilate said to Jesus, Do you not know that I have power to crucify you or release you? And then in the future... That Daniel talks about. And the book of Revelation talks about. When the capital A. Antichrist comes. He will speak. Chapter 9 verse 25. Of Daniel says. He will speak pompous words. Against the most high. In Revelation chapter 13 verse 4. It is said. Who is like the beast. There is none like him. Who is able to make war with him. What does that sound like. It sounds like who is like the most high that we read about, that we'll read later, said later on here. The Antichrist will say that. One quick point of application here. What kind of testimony did Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego have in this pagan court? They had a good testimony, didn't they? They had good work reviews, They did good work. Did that save them? It didn't save them. It didn't save them. Does that mean it doesn't matter how you live? No, it doesn't mean that. But you can't depend on yourself. You must be looking to the Lord. We see then number three, believers' devotion in verses 16 to 18. Verse 16, Chadrach, Meshach, and Abednego answered and said to the king, O Nebuchadnezzar, we have no need to answer you in this matter. Now that kind of sounds like we're not going to dignify your question with an answer. That's not what's meant. What's meant is this, the charge is correct. We're not going to worship. We're not going to waste our breath. There's no need to take your time. We're not going to deny the charge. That's the point here in verse 16. Verse 17, verse 17, if that is the case, our God, whom we serve, is able to deliver us from the burning fiery furnace, and he will deliver us from your hand, O King. Here we see their trust in the Lord. Their trust in the Lord to deliver them. Could God miraculously deliver them? Absolutely. Did they expect a miracle? No, they did not. They never doubted God's power, and they submitted to God's will. They said God could do that if it's his will. And then we read verse 18. You know, you read verses 17 and 18. When, 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 when Dave read this earlier, didn't, don't you get chills? Don't you get goosebumps? Isn't your hair standing in? It's like, this is amazing, these men. I mean, everyone's bowed down. The fire's going. The image is up. They're standing before Nebuchadnezzar, the the most powerful man, perhaps on the face of the earth at that time. And they say this to them, verse 18. If not, let it be known to you, O king, that we do not serve your gods, nor will we worship the image which you have set up. Wow. They had devotion to the Lord no matter what would happen. Did they have a guarantee that they would live? Nope. That's what they're saying here. We are not going to bow down even if it means our death. Some other examples along this line Jeremiah chapter 26, verse 20. We read of a godly prophet by the name of Uriah, and he was murdered. Jeremiah was saved, but Uriah, the prophet, was murdered. In the New Testament, Acts chapter 12, verse 2, the Apostle James, one of Jesus' chosen representatives, was killed by Herod. And we read in the book of Hebrews, of Hebrews 11.35, that others were tortured, not accepting deliverance, that they might obtain a better resurrection. These men here in Daniel 3, they didn't ask for a miracle. They didn't expect a miracle. By faith, they obeyed God's will and submitted to it. They exemplified what Jesus says in Matthew 10, 28. Do not fear them which can kill the body. Fear him who can kill both soul and body in hell. Another passage to write down. In fact, write it down and let's turn there together. Luke chapter 9. Verses twenty-three to twenty-six. So hold your place here in Daniel three, and then go with me to Luke chapter nine. Verses twenty-three to twenty-six. Let's listen to our Lord Jesus. Luke nine twenty-three. He said to them all, "If anyone desires to come after me," Let him deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever desires to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake will save it. For what profit is it to a man if he gains the whole world and himself is destroyed or lost? For whomever is ashamed of me and my words Of Him the Son of Man will be ashamed when He comes in His own glory and in His Father's and of the holy angels. I'll just stop there. Truly following the Lord means I'm not going to live to save my life. Let's go back to Daniel chapter 3 then. We have to learn from Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego's example here. They have true devotion to the Lord. One other thing I want to point out Their true devotion didn't have any conditions. There were no conditions on their devotion to the Lord. What do I mean? They didn't say something like, God, I'm going to serve you if you do this for me. Or God, I'll do this if you make my life better. It is devotion to God, period. Not devotion to God based on what he'll do for me. Or devotion if God blesses me. Their bodies were not what? Their own. They were bought with a price. They belonged to the Lord. And is that true of you, Christian? It is. Number three. Number three. What have we seen so far? We saw, number one, unbelievers' attempt to defraud God of the glory and worship he exclusively deserves. We then saw how God's people are devoted to him no matter what the personal cost. Number three, verses 19 to 30, we read how God reverses, God reverses wicked men's plans and glorifies himself through them. Wicked men attempted to eradicate believers, 19 to 23. What Nebuchadnezzar would do? He's full of fury. He commanded verse 19, that they heat the furnace seven times more than it's usually heated. So what would the effect of that be? Well, he went from slow roast to incinerate, basically. That's what happened. They're, they're not going to just slowly burn to death. As soon as they go in, bow, they're gone. Verse 20. They have these mighty men of valor, so there's brutal government force. And then verses 21 to 23, they're bound up in their coats, their turbans, and etc. They were cast into the midst of the firing furnace. Therefore, verse 22, because the king's command was urgent and the fire furnace exceedingly hot, the flame of the fire killed those who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. And these three men, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, fell, bound, fell down bound into the midst of the burning, fiery furnace. They are absolutely helpless. But then we read in 24 to 27 of God's deliverance. God's deliverance. Hear it from Nebuchadnezzar's own lip, lips. He's got kind of his own little, his, his uh, you know how they have special places in, in athletic stadiums uh, for But people who can afford those kind of things. Here Nebuchadnezzar's got his own thing to watch. People who disobey him. His own special view. And we read here in verse 24, Nebuchadnezzar was astonished. He rose in haste and spoke, saying to his counselors, Did we not cast three men bound in the midst of the fire? They answered and said to the king, True, O king. So he's got witnesses there. Look, he answered, I see four men loose." And not lying there dead and burning, but walking in the midst of the fire. They are not hurt. And the form of the fourth is like the Son of God. Take your bulletins and look with me to the very front of your bulletin there. Some few hundred years before this time, the Isaiah prophet, Isaiah the prophet, said this When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. And through the rivers they shall not overflow you, over, overflow you. Overflow you. Let's read the next two lines together. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned, nor shall the flames scorch you. And what do we read that happened right here? These three godly men. And why did that happen? It happened because of the Lord God, the Holy One of Israel. Who finds them precious in his sight? God delivered these men. And coming back to Daniel three, was there anything that was burned? Yes, the ropes were burned. The pagan state's rope. That was the only thing that was burned. Into verse 25, we read how Nebuchadnezzar saw a fourth individual there. One like the Son of God, which in verse 28 says is an angel. So if you want to get into some fun theological explanations, who is this? Is this an actual angel or is it the pre-incarnate Christ? Well, there's good answers for both. And so we're just going to keep moving on. And we'll save this for some other time and we can devote hours and hours and hours to this. It could have been a pre-incarnate Christ, like as appeared to Samson's parents, or in the book of Judges and other places. It could have been an angel. Uh, remember, there were, three, uh, there were some angels that appeared to, to Abraham as well. But let's move on. We see, lastly, how God glorified himself through wicked men's plans, verses 28 to thirty. Nebuchadnezzar went near the mouth of the burning fiery furnace and spoke, saying, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, servants of the Most High God, come out and come here. That's an amazing thing in and of itself because they were supposed to be fried, burnt, nothing left. Then Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego came from the midst of the fire and the satraps, the ministers, governors, and the king's counselors gathered together and saw that these men on whose bodies the fire had no power. The hair of their head was not singed. That's usually the first thing to go. Nor were their garments affected. There were no burn marks. And the smell of fire was not even on them. You know, when we have a small little campfire in our backyard, I don't have to be around it very long. And I come inside and, boy, I smell like smoke. Isn't this amazing? It's like they would never been there. Nebuchadnezzar and these wicked men, they planned all this to rob glory from God and to destroy God's people. But what did this perfect sovereign God do with all this? He turned it, he reversed it so that he was glorified. He was glorified. It was like these men were never there. And I want you to see this is something that only God could do and only God did. Before I get to the point, I want you to see from Daniel 3, Christian, you must by faith always obey and submit to God's will. We need to learn that from this, don't we? You must always by faith obey and and submit to God's will. You have to trust the Lord, even if it means losing everything. These are lessons most of us take from this, but what is the point of this? Why did Daniel write this? How does it fit into the whole book of Daniel that was written to both challenge Israel to godliness and comfort them that their sovereign God will provide, protect, and deliver them? This is the main point that I have some blanks for you that I want you to see so that we can know how to live by faith in a sin-cursed world. Knowing God's perfect sovereignty. Knowing God's perfect sovereignty over a sin-cursed world enables faithful service for Christ. Knowing God's perfect sovereignty over a sin-cursed world enables faithful service for Christ. When the wicked of this world want to do you harm, they might well do you harm, but you're trusting in what kind of sovereignty? Perfect sovereignty. And when you trust and you know that, that's essential to faith. When you know that, that enables, well, the next two words, those next two blanks, faithful service. God has, you, God, God has you on this earth, Christian, and God saved you, not so that you'll just mark time until you either go to be with the Lord or Jesus returns, but so that you will faithfully serve Him no matter what. Some points of application. See, number one, the difference between worldly religion and true religion. What's worldly religion like? Worldly religion is physically oriented. It threatens... It coerces. Worldly religion is physically oriented. And it threatens and it curses. You know, if I were to say that, boy, maybe not even 10 years or so ago, we might all just kind of say, yeah, we know that happens in different parts of the world. But we're starting to see that now in the United States, aren't we? Where belief is being forced in the workplaces where the belief about gender and things like that is being forced and compelled. This kind of worship, it is materially oriented, physically oriented, and it threatens and, coer- and coerces. What is true religion characterized by? True religion is truth-oriented. True religion is truth-oriented and it teaches and convicts. Do you see the difference? True religion is truth-oriented and it teaches and convicts. The best and the most that worldly religion can do is put on a great show and try to get as many to follow, and if not, I'm going to make you do it. That's what means coercion. It's all external. And it can be, this external kind of religion can be rampant atheism that we see today. It can be a cultural kind of religion, whether it be a Roman Catholicism. It can be a Lutheranism. It could be an Amish. It can be a Baptist, where it just focuses on the externals, but it makes you do it. But where is the focus? External. But do you see the difference between worldly religion and the true religion of the Christian faith? It is truth-oriented that teaches and convicts. So what is the object there? It's the heart. And when God changes the heart through your teaching of the Word, God changes the heart. Are there external changes? You betcha. There sure are. It comes from the heart because you love the Lord and you fear Him and you want to obey and serve Him. That is the difference between worldly religion and true religion. Number two, Jesus said that in this world we will suffer persecution. We will experience persecution. We saw this uh, this past Wednesday in Matthew 5 in the Beatitudes, verses 10 through 12. And Jesus, he did talk about persecution, but he didn't limit it to just physical persecution. He said, Blessed are you when men revile you. You don't have to go to North Korea or Saudi Arabia to suffer persecution. You experience it in your workplace, in your neighborhood. When your family, when they say you're a nut to believe that, that is persecution. And Jesus said, blessed are you when you experience that. You have a great hope and anticipation in the future kingdom, and you are in the line of the prophets who have gone before you. In John 15, Jesus said, they persecuted me. Guess what they're going to do to you? They're going to do that. In Philippians 1.29, he said, just as you have by God's grace received faith. By God's grace, you'll experience persecution. It's just part and parcel of living a Christian life. And Paul closes in Second Timothy 3.12. All who live godly in Christ Jesus will suffer persecution. And again, you might think, nobody's coming to kill me. Nobody's taking my, bank, my money to my bank. No, but they think you're a nut. They think you're crazy. They think this is stupid and foolish. That is persecution. True followers of Christ are always going to be in the minority. You will always be in the minority. And Christian, when you experience and face these things, you can't make decisions based on what is everyone else doing. What are my friends doing? What's the rest of the world doing? Or even the rest of Christianity doing? You must look at what does God say? What does Christ say? Jesus said in Matthew 7, 13-14, Enter by the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, broad is the way that leads to destruction. There are many who go in by it, because narrow is the gate, and difficult is the way which leads to life, and there are few who find it. Christian, who does your body, who does your life belong to? You're bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. If you are Christ's, this body doesn't belong to you. And so Romans 12:1 and 2, we give it to the Lord. Here I am. Take me. Take my life and let it be. Take my voice, my hands, my silver, my gold, my mind, my intellect. It's all yours, O oh Lord. I'm yours. Number three. If you find it challenging to be faithful in the face of opposition, remember, remember these three men. Remember these three men, especially verses 17 and 18. What did they do while everyone bowed? They stood, didn't they? They stood. What did they do when Nebuchadnezzar threatened them with fire? Worship or die? Bow down and worship or die. What did they do? They stood. Everyone else bowed, they stood. Nebuchadnezzar threatened them. They stood. What happened when they were in the midst of the fire? They stood, didn't they? Because God provided for them. Remember these three as an encouragement Christian to stand for the Lord, no matter what the cost might be. Last, number four, don't forget that the Son of God is with you in every trial of faith. Isn't that encouragement? Every trial of faith, the Son of God is always with you. Know that God is always in perfect control. Was God always in perfect control with Joseph? That we saw several weeks ago. What about with Job? Was God in perfect control? Sure was. What about the psalmist, Psalm 73? Was God in perfect control? Or did things get away from him? No, he was in perfect control. And so a Christian... Remember the main point of this, knowing God's perfect sovereignty over a sin-cursed world that enables faithful service for Christ.